0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And I see more phishing attempts on a daily basis than I had ever seen before. And so criminals apparently are, are not going away. Hello, everyone, and
1: welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's Law and Policy Podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hi, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, Ben has the story of the Secret Service investigating ransomware. I've got a story of police buying hacked data... And later in the show, my interview with Scott Goads. He's a partner with Barnes & Thornburg. We're going to be talking about how companies who are affected with data breaches should approach their insurance recovery. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash cyber. That's aka.ms slash FedCyber. All right, Ben, why don't you kick things off for us this week? What do you have for us?
2: So actually, both of our stories this week come from Motherboard, from Vice, so... I guess a shout out to them for having some hot content this week for us. Uh, (laughs) My story is about the Seattle, Washington Police Department trying to unmask a ransomware attacker by deploying its own hack, uh, Hmm. sending this hacker basically a booby trap to get them to reveal him or herself. And they do so using a network investigative technique. So there are a couple interesting elements to the story. For one, we know that law enforcement has used these NITs consistently, especially around users who are using a Tor network. But previously, it was sort of believed that the only agency at the federal level engaging in these techniques was the FBI. This story is about how, in this case, it was the United States Secret Service that is using the network investigative technique, which Hmm. is is interesting and counterintuitive. The Seattle Police Department's official, who instigated this network investigative technique, was working in their capacity as a task force officer for the U.S. Secret Service. And part of the reason they were doing that is this all emanated from a ransomware attack on a correctional facility in the state of Washington.
3: (laughs) So. Now it's personal. Now it's personal, yeah. Right,
2: okay. I already see the makings of a fantastic movie here. Right. Uh, Maybe you and I can do some writing after this is over. So it was back in 2016. This correctional facility in Washington State found ransomware on its network, and it was a really bad ransomware attack. It took down their network for a significant period of time. Obviously, the files were locked. And this investigator, who is part of this task force, works for the Secret Service, Hatch this idea to send a bunch of Files to the alleged perpetrator of this attack, basically saying, I would like to pay you the ransom and I would like to unlock these encrypted files, but I'm having trouble with one of them. Can you help me out? Here's the one that I'm having trouble with. Embedded in that file is a booby trap that will allow the perpetrator of this attack to open that document. And that potentially could reveal relevant information like that person's IP address, even though the attacker was using Tor. So unfortunately for law enforcement and for the Secret Service, the deployment of this technique was not successful. They did not actually seize any evidence. But I think there are a couple broader lessons here. One is that we now know for the first time that different government agencies besides the FBI have both the legal authority and the capability to engage in these network investigative techniques, which are, you know, pretty intrusive, things that we would not approve of if they were being done by cyber criminals. And it also is a reflection of a court decision I think we've talked about on this podcast where, or at least a maybe not a court decision, I believe it was a regulation at the federal level saying that magistrate judges can now authorize the use of these techniques outside of their area of jurisdiction. So that's critically important because obviously people who are using Tor could be anywhere in the world. The people who are engaging in cyber attacks could be anywhere in the world. And so in order to give any law enforcement agency the ability and the authority to go after these cyber criminals, they need to uh, expand their jurisdictional reach. Uh, and this story I just thought was a, a good example of some of these concepts coming into play when we're talking about NITs.
1: Does any of this give you pause or do, are you, are you have concerns here?
2: I'm always concerned when the United States government is using tools that are potentially this intrusive and could be co-opted by cyber criminals. So, you know, when we're talking about unmasking the identity of cyber criminals, that's obviously a good thing that law enforcement would want to have. But, you know, like with any sort of malware, it could potentially get, these techniques could get into the wrong hands or they could be exploited for political purposes. And so just the fact that we now have multiple agencies who have the authority to use these techniques, I think should give us at least a a sense of concern for potential abuse. And it is becoming more ubiquitous. We know that law enforcement, namely the FBI, has been using NITs in cases that involve Tor Network or other anonymous systems. You know, they've used NITs to solve some pretty serious crimes, particularly related to child predators, child pornography, but also uh, Hmm. crimes related to bomb threats, financial cyber criminals. So they know, you know, despite... The fact that this particular booby trap was not successful, the techniques themselves can be successful. But there are concerns based on the fact that these tools could be abused, like I said, and that the orders granting law enforcement the authority to use these tools could be overbroad. Motherboard had an article they wrote previously that the FBI used an NIT to hack over 8,000 computers based in 120 countries around the world. And they did that all with a single warrant. So now that we know that not just the FBI, but potentially other federal agencies and secret services under the auspices of the Department of Homeland Security might have the power to execute these very broad cross-jurisdictional warrants. And, you know, I don't think that necessarily sits well with people who are concerned about these sort of techniques.
1: Coincidentally, uh, my article this week is also, as you say, uh, from Motherboard uh, and Vice and written by Joseph Cox, which yours was also. <laughs> ah, for, Joseph for, Cox, for our this is your
2: episode,
1: yeah. <laughs> right, I mean, for our listeners, Ben and I both independently choose the stories we want to talk about. So uh, it's a coincidence that uh, we both uh, came back with stories from Joseph Cox this week. But uh, I guess tip of the hat to him that uh, he's, he's writing stuff that's right up our alley.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you've done your job well, Mr. Cox.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So my story this week is titled, Police Are Buying Access to Hacked Website Data. And the crux of this story is that uh, police are engaging with a company that calls themselves SpyCloud. And this company, SpyCloud, goes out and gathers up data that's been put out into the public via data breaches. So we all hear these stories about the big data breaches that happen. A lot of that data gets sold online in the dark web, uh, other underground markets. This company gathers that information up and then they make it available for a fee to law enforcement to be able to go through that data, to be able to search through that data, to help law enforcement with the types of things that... That they want to do, similar to what you were talking about. You can uh, associate email addresses with IP addresses. You can you know, connect all sorts of different information that comes up in these data breaches. What is evidently concerning here, and uh, what I'm looking forward to getting your take on, is that this is a bit of an end around for law enforcement to not have to go through the usual processes that they're required to when they're out there gathering data
2: about you and me and everybody else. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of problems I have with this particular story. You are correct that this is an end-around; they don't have to obtain any sort of legal subpoena to get this information if they are simply purchasing it and giving it to law enforcement. So that's one potential problem I have with this. The way they brand this exercise, and this was revealed as part of a webinar. So be careful what slides you put up on your webinars, people. Uh, they could be <laughs> they could be leaked to Mr. Cox at Motherboard, but the way they're branding this is, well, we're using criminals' data against them. So they've stolen the data, but now we're repurposing that data to help law enforcement. I think that's a really misleading way to characterize this, because as the article notes, 99.9% of the data that has been breached here does not belong to cyber criminals. It belongs to all of us, uh, people like, like me and you. And so, yeah, I would say the combination of the fact that the branding of this is misleading, and the fact that they're is no legal process to obtain this information and law enforcement will now have this information at its fingertips to conduct searches and potentially initiate prosecutions is certainly uh, a disturbing element to this.
1: Could law enforcement run into issues, in other words, if if they went in front of a judge with this information that they'd gotten through this spy cloud company, is it possible that the judge could come back or or the defense for the the person
2: uh, being accused could come back and say, you're, you you are you're not allowed to gather data this way. That so far there we really haven't seen any legal cases where data obtained this way, data that's been purchased and used by law enforcement has been suppressed at trials. I mean, unless the evidence was obtained illegally and it is not illegal to purchase this data and it's not illegal for SpyCloud once they have purchased this data to share it with law enforcement, you know, then the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine does not apply and that evidence is going to be admissible at trial. But it is sort of ironic that some people are going to be convicted based on information that was stolen as part of a cybercrime. And, you know, I've just been thinking about trying to analogize this to the physical world. So let's say the police officers conduct a raid, or I guess if we're going to have a, a true metaphor here, let's say some sort of private organization comes across a criminal compound and steals all of the guns and gives them to law enforcement and says, hmm. here, you know, we're turning the criminals against them. Here are all these guns that we found. Now you can use them. I feel like wouldn't we have ethical problems with that or am I misinterpreting things here?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, the thing it reminded me of, and this is, is, isn't a precise Analogy, but I guess part of why I was going down that line with questioning is, I know, for example, you know, some of my friends who have security clearances, they can run into these strange situations where, for example, with um, the Edward Snowden leaks, uh-huh. where even though Snowden leaked that stuff and it was printed in the Wall Street Journal or the, the New York Times and, and all over the place, people with security clearances weren't allowed to read that stuff because technically it was still classified. Even though it was out in public, right, they were restricted from looking at it because that would be a violation of their clearance to look at information they were not cleared to look at.
2: Yeah, I mean unfortunately those same types of protections don't apply to data that's been stolen as part of a breach uh, just mm. because it doesn't have any sort of classification level attached to it now it's possible that classified information could be breached uh, or classified right. under like our federal classification system. And then, you know, you might run into those same issues. But for things like personally identifiable information, you don't encounter some of those national security concerns that motivate I think what was happening to information security professionals during the Snowden disclosures.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So, do you not have Fourth Amendment Rights to privacy about some of your personal information. If someone else got to that information first, if the the cat's out of the bag, the horse is out of the barn. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting question. So the 4th Amendment is supposed to be a tool to protect you against law enforcement. It's to be free from government searches and seizures. There's no 4th Amendment right as it applies to criminals because, you know, that's not who the 4th Amendment is intending to protect you from. It gets interesting when the government is making use of these stolen data, but I don't think it invokes Fourth Amendment protection just because, you know, when we look at Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, it's all about whether the evidence was obtained legally. And so in most cases, depending on the type of information that's sought and the source of information, you're going to have to go through some sort of judicial process in order to obtain that evidence legally. Purchasing breach data at this point is not something that is illegal. Uh, It is information that's publicly available. It's valuable information. So getting it into the hands of law enforcement does not invoke any sort of legal concerns at this point. Now Congress Mm -hmm. could make a decision uh, or any state legislature for that matter could make a decision to change that. But the way things are now, it just does not invoke Fourth Amendment protection which I think is somewhat problematic because we have kind of a perverse incentive structure here. The more cyber criminals we have, the more data that gets revealed the better off law enforcement are in terms of you know the ability to track IP addresses and match them to email addresses and so forth. And so you never want to, to get into a situation where more crime ends up being good for law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of the incentive structure you're uh, developing here. So I think that's um, one thing that really s- kind of stuck out uh, at me when it comes to this story.
1: Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, uh, again, uh, thanks to uh, Joseph Cox uh, for writing uh, our whole <laughs> for, podcast this uh, week. Our, yeah. Exactly, for being uh, the source for so much good uh, stuff to talk about this week uh, over on Motherboard. Uh, we do appreciate it. Those are our stories. It is time to move on to our listener on the line. Our listener on the line this week is a friend of the show. His name is Bennett, and he sent in a couple of questions. Here is our
3: listener on the line, Bennett. Hi, guys. I have a couple questions for you. When I visit websites, I'm often presented with a pop-up box that's asking me to click acceptance of cookies or a privacy policy or some other seemingly regulatory required uh, thing. Uh, usually it has a yes, a no, or a little X in the corner that I can just click it to close. And I'm wondering, does what I click there really matter? Uh, Does it create any obligations for me or does it create any obligations for the company? It doesn't seem like it changes the user experience at all, no matter what I click. My other question is, after listening to your interview with Hilary Wandall. it made me think of an experience I had with a fine dining restaurant in Baltimore recently. Upon entering the establishment, they take your temperature and have you fill out a form that includes your name, your phone number, your email address, and then they write that temperature uh, down on that form. And I'm wondering if that then puts a requirement on them to comply with HIPAA regulations, since they are collecting not only personally identifiable data, but medical data. Thanks for the show. All right, Ben, a couple of good questions. What do you think? So great questions. I will go through
2: them in turn. On the cookies issue, you've identified something that a lot of cyber scholars have also noticed, that whether you click yes or no or simply X out of that warning that says this website is collecting cookies on you, it doesn't really have much legal significance. In fact, the warnings themselves seem to me and to other scholars as a CYA effort on the part of websites and technology Hmm. companies so that they don't potentially run afoul of mostly European regulations, so GDPR and other cyber regulations coming out of Europe. There haven't Hmm. been any enforcement actions on this, but I think it's safer and easier to put up these warnings that sites are collecting cookies than it is to expose yourself to potential liability. So I think one thing Bennett mentioned is that even if you click no, you can get access to the site. That's true for a lot of sites. It's not true for for all sites. Sometimes you really do need to accept cookies in order to access the site. But it is true that a lot of sites don't do that, Uh, I think they're largely putting up those warnings to protect to shield themselves from legal liability should it arise, even though it most likely will not arise and has not arisen so far. That's not exactly great for the consumer because most of us simply click through, you know, I want to read my news article. I don't care if they're collecting my cookies XXX, you know. Um, (laughs) I guess that's the wrong use of XXX. (laughs) Uh, Especially online. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Uh, So, you know, most of us just click out of that nobody reads the actual policies usually have to click on a link to find the policies and, and nobody does that so you could say there are some transparency benefits and there are at least you know that they're collecting cookies but how transparent is it really? If nobody's going to go and, and read the fine print that's in, you mm-hmm. know, indecipherable legalese. Uh, right. So, a a great question. On the second question, some of us are indeed going back to dining establishments. Not me, but other people are going uh, to indoor <laughs> dining establishments where they're doing things like taking your temperature. Some restaurants or other facilities are asking customers if they've tested positive for COVID. This is an acceptable action on the part of restaurants because they are not covered entities under HIPAA. So I think as we've talked about, HIPAA only applies to covered entities. Generally, that's going to be health systems, hospitals, certain government agencies. But restaurants are not part of the covered entities under that statute, meaning there are no restrictions on what they can do once you enter their premises. They can take your temperature. They can ask if you've tested positive for COVID and they are welcome to share that information Without facing a HIPAA violation. Now, uh, what you can, can do as a consumer is say, no, I'm not going to eat at your restaurant if you do that. And, you know, at this point, depending on what state you're in, obviously you can just walk out of the restaurant. But if you do want to eat there, they might actually compel you to, to give that information. Uh, but mm-hmm. they are not covered entities under HIPAA, so they would not run into any uh, HIPAA difficulties.
1: Do you suppose this is also kind of a, a CYA thing on on the part of the restaurant to say, "Look, we're we're making a good faith attempt. If, if someone gets sick at our restaurant, look at all these things that we did to try to protect ourselves, our employees, our customers, everybody."
2: Yeah, so there's certainly an element of that. So much of this is security theater just because there are a lot of asymptomatic people. So, just mm. by taking temperatures, you're not going to capture a lot of people who potentially could be COVID positive. The liability issue is really interesting. You know, one of the things that certain members of Congress are doing is trying to create a liability shield as it comes to COVID so that customers and employers cannot sue a company if that company inadvertently exposed individuals to COVID. So... At this point, yes, they are probably covering all of their bases, just like any organization that wants to cover their you know what's well
1: who can blame them?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Everybody (laughs) wants to avoid litigation. That's the last thing these these businesses need, especially since many of them are in dire financial straits. Even if they have been reopened, there are far fewer customers than there were prior to this pandemic. And, you know, we're now seeing a major uptick of cases across the country. Some states have actually some states that had reopened restaurants, like California actually decided to close them again. So you're already facing this very significant financial hardship. The last thing you want to do is uh, expose yourself to litigation. So anything that you can do to try to protect yourself from that threat, I think uh, might be valuable. So there's, there's that. And then a lot of it is, is pure security theater. Sure. All right. Well, our
1: thanks to uh, our listener, Bennett, for sending in those good questions. We would love to hear from you. We have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. Uh, you can call and leave us a message there. and We may use it on the air. You can also send us an email. It's caveat at the dot you. Ben, I recently uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Scott Goads. He's a partner at Barnes & Thornburg. And uh, our discussion centered on how companies who've been affected by data breaches should approach their recovery from an insurance point of view. Here's my conversation with Scott Goads. I help companies with insurance problems. And
0: I help companies that are finding themselves in the spot where an insurance carrier has refused to pay a claim or an insurance carrier uh, has said that there's limited coverage available, as well as helping companies understand the scope of coverage under their policies more generally. And so when there's been a cyber attack, a data breach, ransomware, uh, business email compromise, and, and wire fraud, and the insurance carriers have decided that they don't need to pay or don't need to pay the claim in full, then I come in to help convince them otherwise, whether it be by discussions with the carrier directly or going to court and having a court tell the carriers they need to pay. When you
1: have a disagreement here, what are the things that come up?
0: It's a real range. Uh, early on, when I started working in space in 2008, the disagreements really arose in the connection with a payment card event or, or more colloquially, a credit card data breach. And in the context of those, pretty frequently, a company that's been hit will be assessed by the card brands, sometimes directly and sometimes through a processor or both, saying that the retailer that was allegedly compromised has to reimburse the processor and the brands for replacing cards that were compromised and for fraudulent charges. And the insurance carrier said, well, that's just simply not covered. Or if it is covered, it's only covered in a small percentage of the entire policy limits. So we had some pretty heated disagreements there in terms of how to make that work. And then in terms of ransomware, I'm finding that there are disagreements in connection with how much should be covered, uh, dealing with uh, the lost income, and sort of getting the parties on board with the total amount of loss and the steps that were taken to get the business back online. And then for business email compromises, there's a question of whether it's covered or not, and if it is covered, how much is covered.
1: How often do you find that people who have fallen victim to these sorts of things, they think that their insurance is going to cover them, but then it turns out it, it doesn't?
0: Well, most of the times that I'm involved, that's, that's how it comes around. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but the quick answer is that every time people come to me, it's because they're in a spot where the insurance carrier has suggested that they're not going to pay or there's a threat that they're not going to pay, or they want to be careful to make certain that they're dealing with the insurance carrier away so that the carrier will pay. So for work a day events, and there, there are undoubtedly many claims that the insurance carriers pay appropriately and pay in full, the types of claims that are right down the middle of the plate, that perhaps a more traditional PII event, a breach of PII or otherwise. But I get phone calls when people have questions and or there have been indications that the carriers think that they don't have to pay or can otherwise limit coverage again um, undoubtedly there are many many claims that the carriers pay either in full or relatively close but i tend to not see those claims
2: what
1: sort of questions do you recommend people ask their insurance carriers to get ahead of this to make sure that you know you've got your your eyes dotted and your t's crossed before there's an incident
0: so a lot of that comes down to uh, at the time of purchase working with your your broker and see if you can have a conversation with the carrier at the time that you're, you're buying your insurance program. And it's easier said than done because there are, there are two major hurdles. One is many policyholders are renewing their entire slate of insurance policies at the same time. They all have the same renewal date. So perhaps on June 1, a company is renewing its workers' comp, its property, its crime, its cyber insurance, its general liability insurance, its directors and officers, its errors and omissions, kidnap, ransom, and extortion, and other policies all at the same time. That's quite a feat to accomplish to, to renew all those policies and at the primary layer, at the, at the excess layer. So you could be talking dozens and dozens, if not significantly more policies all at once. And the insurance industry pretty frequently tells a broker the types of coverages that will be provided and sometimes limits, but they don't always provide the full set of details in terms of limits. They don't always say, well, for this policy, you'll have a $5 million policy limit overall, but a $100,000 limit for this kind of cyber loss. And they don't typically provide the full policy. They don't typically provide the full set of endorsements until months after the policy period has started. And so it's quite unlike commercial contracting, where parties can negotiate oftentimes the terms of a contract, you don't, as a policyholder, have the opportunity to really negotiate the terms. It's terms that are offered by the carrier that are proposed. And there may be opportunities to ask for different endorsements that the carrier writes and issues, but they hold the power of the pen and they always are the ones that are issuing the contract. And, And when they do that, they, again, pretty typically don't actually issue the contract until well after the contract period has started. And so imagine any other commercial context where you go to a company and say, well, I'd like to enter into a contract with you. And they say, okay, well, here's what we have, take it or leave it. And and by here's what we have, we say, here's the kind of contract that we have, and we'll give you a copy of it two months later.
1: What sorts of things are we seeing come out of the COVID-19 pandemic? What specific things are you seeing that are new here?
0: It's largely more of what we have been seeing. And what I mean by that is ransomware is continued, uh, business email compromises continue, and I see more phishing attempts on a daily basis than I had ever seen before. And so uh, criminals apparently are are not going away. Efforts to compromise systems aren't going away. There's reports of a state court system that was uh, allegedly hit with ransomware. And so from that perspective, it's It's just it's more, unfortunately, of the same.
1: Are there particular challenges that folks are facing just from the fact that people cannot get together face to face? I'm I'm imagining that opens up for fraud. If, if, in other words, you know, I'm taking out a policy or I'm establishing some sort of business relationship with someone and we can't actually meet face to face. I can't physically hand them my ID, basic things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. So, so much more work is happening remotely so much more work of course is happening by email and and by other connections with people that you haven't met or that you don't see regularly and so there are stories where apocryphal stories and real stories for example in the context of a business email compromise where when i've talked about this people say oh sure we almost had that happen we we received a message saying please wire the following amounts to this location and just before it happened or just after it happened I ran into this person in the hallway and said, oh, by the way, I've got your, I sent your wire, or I'm about to send your wire, just FYI. And in the hallway, the person says, what are you talking about? I didn't, I didn't ask for you to wire anything or do anything like that. And they managed to catch it. Well, if you're not in the office and you're not going to see people in person, you don't have that same opportunity to correct for that. That's just just one example of how things are not able to be corrected. Or if you're used to doing things by phone, because that's how we're operating, then, or by email rather than by phone, because that's how things are operating, then the mindset of following up with someone to say, well, I we need to see you in person or I need to get a phone call is not the same. And, and there's going to be much more reliance upon emails and other electronic communications to get things done so that the perspective of and the viewpoint of, well, you shouldn't click on email, you shouldn't do things by email, that's how the world is operating these days.
1: From your perspective, with the experience that you have, is there anything that you think could be done on the policy side of things or the regulatory side of things that could help smooth some of these things over? That could help prevent some of these, these tensions that happen between the people who have the policies and the insurance providers?
0: In, in terms of that, ultimately, the, the best thing for policyholders is ensuring that, that the insurance companies actually pay claims and cover claims. And and don't allow them to engage in a narrow interpretation of the language that they wrote, particularly on a post hoc basis. So that's an important thing, uh, making sure that they live up to their contracts. And the fact that there are cases where policyholder wins, that there are rulings that something should have been covered, that's a situation where the insurance carrier should have paid up in the first place. And And it's frustrating that a policyholder has to go to court. But that's the reality. So from that perspective, that's one easy fix is, is when a policyholder buys a, a policy to make certain that the carrier actually pays the claims underneath them.
1: You know, I I suppose uh, this is kind of like asking a a barber if I need a haircut, but uh, (laughs) I'm curious, you know, in terms of uh, uh, someone investing in someone like you, someone who does the type of work that you do, before you sign on the bottom line for that insurance policy to have a third party look it over, it strikes me that could be a good investment.
0: Well, recognizing that I would be uh, patting myself on the back, similar to your Analogy, I agree with that. And part of the rationale for it is that cyber insurance policies and crime insurance policies uh, vary from carrier to carrier pretty frequently. And they seem to not be well understood, not be well understood by the people that buy them. And they seem to not necessarily even be well understood by the people that adjust the claims under them or, or sometimes even underwrite them. And as cyber risks evolve for purposes of a policyholder, have a conversation with someone who's seen these things and explain, here's where carriers will try and use this term or these conditions as a trap door and and explain to them where the differentials are and and why a handful of terms can be a significant difference and why, for example, just one word can be a challenge for a policyholder. I had a, a case a little while ago where I was telling a, a federal court of appeals the meaning of the word direct. And it turns out that courts have actually interpreted direct three separate ways, uh, whether mm-hmm. it be a third party versus first party liability, whether it be a question of how much time has passed, or whether it be an idea of a kind of a but-for cause or approximate cause that had this not happened, or when this happened, that's why you lost you ultimately lost the money that you lost. So that sort of thing wouldn't jump off the page at most commercial insurance buyers. How many people ha- would think that the word direct has led to dozens of cases in court hmm. disputing the scope of it or or other, other provisions that are buried within there? So it can be very helpful to sit down and talk with someone about, here's what the industry has done, here's how they interpret it, and here's how they've Either covered or told policyholders that they didn't mean to cover.
1: Them. All right, Ben, uh, interesting stuff, huh?
0: Yes,
2: I have a story for you, Dave. Uh, All right. Something that just happened to me recently. So- okay. I have a home warranty policy. I I swear that this is getting somewhere uh, related to the interview that you just gave. And my garage door broke. Mm. And it took me a while to figure out exactly what happened. It turns out that the spring snapped, so the door won't Mm. open. So I went uh, to the website of my home warranty company and filed a claim. And it pointed to a tiny uh, subsection of their 200-page policy manual saying that they don't cover defective springs. (laughs) now, okay, <laughs> you're never going to anticipate what single thing inside your household is going to be the thing that breaks, uh, that you know causes your garage door, or any other appliance for that matter, to malfunction.
1: There are countless springs uh, throughout our homes. <laughs>
2: yes, there are countless springs, and there are countless other things that I'm sure, if I actually took the time to read that giant policy manual, I'd be like, wait, this isn't covered. Right. Um, so that's really what this invoked when I when I heard this interview. Um, um, insurance uh, companies, I don't mean have, to laugh. <laughs> no, I, I welcome you to laugh at my misfortune. Uh, <laughs> hopefully I can get this fixed without paying right. an arm and a leg. So if any of our listeners right. are garage uh, repair professionals uh, would love to hear your advice on this. <laughs> but, you know, the larger point is insurance companies will do everything they can to not cover a claim. Uh, right. th- that's what they do to protect their bottom line. I mean, they have to they have to cover enough so that you're willing to purchase their insurance product. But, yeah. um, you know, they are going to try and limit what they cover. And I think what came out in the interview is it's very hard to anticipate what the next breach is going to be uh, and whether that's going to be covered by one's insurance policy. And it's very difficult for a layperson or someone you know who's not well-versed in these issues to actually read the fine print of these policies and figure out if it meets a company's needs. I know you, know, you were saying in the interview you didn't want to make this an advertisement, but it, I think it really is incumbent upon businesses to consult professionals, see if the policy that you're intending to purchase really encompasses the variety of threats that have been presented.
1: Yeah, I I think that was the, the big take home for me as well, that with something as important as your cyber breach insurance, it's worth the investment to have a third party, someone who has no real Skin in the game, you know, uh, and, and understands all the legal aspects to just read through the policy, so they can tell you, okay, here's what's covered and here's what's not. So if you want those things covered, you need to go back to them and say, hey, how, why, you know, where are we with this? And I and let's get that in writing, so that you know you're you're good to go.
2: Yeah, I mean, most of us are just not capable of negotiating the terms of these types of contracts. And that uneven relationship between consumers or businesses and the insurance companies exists really in, in every realm. I mean, I'm in no position to negotiate with my auto insurance company on, on their policies because right. even though I'm a lawyer, there's no way I'm reading through you know, exactly what they cover. So it is one of those instances where because the impact of a breach could be so incredibly severe... Uh, we've seen it happen to uh, companies in the private sector. We've seen it happen in the public sector. I think uh, it's worth that investment to get somebody uh, who knows how to read these documents uh, to look them over for you. You know what cars are full of, Ben? Uh, I, I dare say I do not know. Springs. Oh, Lots gosh. Of springs. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Lots of, there's
2: springs. All right, Lots I'm, of springs I'm opening up my Geico policy <laughs> and seeing if it covers the springs. Yeah. That's right. That's right.
1: All right. Well, uh, again, our thanks to Scott Goodes for joining us. Uh, really interesting information. Uh, we appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work.